0: Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hello, this is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. I'm sharing with you today a conversation that I had with B.J. Miller on March 6, 2019, as part of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education Conversations on Compassion series. Dr. Miller is a palliative care physician and a leading voice reframing society's discourse on the field of death and dying. His interests are in working across disciplines to affect broad-based culture change and in cultivating a civic model for aging and dying. He invites us to think about and discuss the end of our lives through the lens of a mindful, human-centered model of care, one that embraces dying not as a medical event, but rather as a universally shared life experience. Informed by his own experience as a patient, BJ powerfully advocates the roles of our senses, community, and presence in deciding a better ending. He brings this unique blend of training, experience, and commitment to furthering the message that suffering and dying are fundamental and intrinsic aspects of life. He has a wonderful TED Talk called What Really Matters at the End of Life and has written a book called A Beginner's Guide to the End, co-authored with Shoshana Berger. I hope you enjoy this conversation. We begin with part one. All of us have a backstory, and oftentimes that backstory results in our present story. And I think certainly that is the case with you. And you were an undergraduate at Princeton and had a horrible accident. And maybe you can share that with us mm-hmm. and how it impacted you in terms of uh, the consequences of that after and how it led perhaps to you. Gaining greater insight into our mortality?
1: Yeah, that's a question I know the answer to. Thank you for that. Um, so, yes yeah, so sophomore year, college, um, just after Thanksgiving break, we had just gotten back on campus <clears throat> and we had been away from each other for all four days. So all of those friends were excited to see each other. And as was a Monday night, we went out uh, just kind of horsing around and um, There's a commuter train in Princeton that runs from the Princeton property to Princeton Junction to take people to Philly and New York, and it's called the Dinky, of all things. (laughs) It's sad to lose limbs to a thing called the Dinky. It's it's very humbling. But anyways, uh, (laughs) uh, we're walking to the Wawa Market to get a sandwich, and there's this train just sitting there, not very daring, just a parked train with a ladder on it, just sitting there, and so we climbed it like you would climb a tree or I really, didn't think for a second that it was a dangerous thing to do. It wasn't moving or anything, but when I stood up, I had a metal watch on, and when I stood up, I—this is like the, San, the buses in San Francisco, the wires that run overhead. So when I stood up, electricity arced to the watch, um, a metal watch, and that was it. Electricity entered the arm and blew out the legs. So, yeah, that—that that was it. It was this, you know instantaneous. Well, the. The amputations were surgical. Um, I was in a burn unit for I don't know, three months or so in New Jersey, St. Barnabas in Livingston, New Jersey, and got great care there, by the way. But that, boy, there's a lot to say. But that, as, as you say, Jim, that set me up for all sorts of things moving forward. And I think early on the decision was, thanks to my mom, I learned, and, and sort of the disability rights m- movement, I learned that disability was not was A, normal. (laughs) B, was something that you don't overcome, because it's not going away. You know, it's not something that you put behind you. I think everyone sort of wants you to, or that's often the narrative. But thanks to my mother and others, I knew that that was not possible. Also, it wasn't smart. So pretty quickly, this became um, a, a compelling force for me to learn from, to bounce off of, to wrestle with. And it also put me in front of a lot of very, very kind people and uh, giving people. I feel so, um, I mean, there's so much to say about this, so I'll try to keep it short. Um, And by the way, if we get to questions, there's nothing off limits. This subject that we're talking about is huge, and it's personal and professional, so anything's welcome. But I learned uh, how a couple things I think that really led forward. One was this the, the the myth of independence, I'd like to call it. that's that it's not like I went from the independent world to the dependent world, which is sort of how we language this. And that's one of the reasons why it feels harder than it has to be is you feel like the world isn't made for you anymore, and so you have to go over here. But of course, there is no such thing as an independent person. I, I've never met an independent person. I don't know if anyone would ever want to be into it. It would be a very lonely thing to be. So it taught me that, which was a very useful thing, which then ended up putting me in touch with all the things that we do have in common, including that we suffer. And so that led me into sort of interest in universal threads that unite people. Uh, and suffering is a big one. And so that led me ultimately into medicine and into palliative care. And I guess one more thing to say about it, and again, we can ping off it, but you mentioned joy, Jim, and how uh, some people die before they die. You know, there's all those ways we, these early deaths before we actually die. There's a gazillion ways to do that. But if you have loss earlier in life, and if you have enough support to kind of work with it, move through it, it's almost like a skill, like you can get good at losing. You can get good at falling. We just witnessed a woman in the hallway who just was very good at falling. It's, like, it's almost as if there's a skill to it. Um, and she got up. And she got up. Um, but there really, there's a skill to it. And, and uh, you get to learn resilience. You get to find nooks and crannies in yourself that you wouldn't have otherwise had an excuse to find. <laughs> And you see these incredible acts of kindness from other people that you wouldn't have had an excuse to evince. And I guess where I'm going is for all the sorrow and all the heartache that certainly went with it, I don't mean to be Pollyannish, those things were exactly what made me realize the power and importance of joy and compassion, et cetera. They're all kind of related. So, in a way, getting in touch with all that loss put me in touch with beauty, put me in touch with kindness, et cetera. And so it's just continued to be a lesson, a a bundle of lessons for me, and it's pulled me into all sorts of interesting work.
0: You know, one of the things that this sort of, I think, intersects with is this concept of equanimity because... The nature of life is ups and downs, and a lot of us sort of have a tendency to want the upside yeah, and because it feels good, and you feel alive, and you feel great, and a lot of attention comes to you because of that. Uh, But the reality is, I think, as BJ was showing us, is that oftentimes the greatest lessons we learn and the greatest insights we get are with the downsides, which often has to do with very deep suffering but it's the nature of that suffering that demonstrates one's common humanity and the reality that none of us uh, can avoid suffering. So before we go on to this very deep topic, I want to ask you about tea. Mm. So you were a tea merchant. Let's hear a little bit about Mm. that. None of you thought I was gonna go there, (laughs) did you? (laughs) Sophomore year, before I got
1: injured, I was heading into East Asian studies. I was studying Chinese language. The Tiananmen Square had, uh, massacre had happened on my way into college, and uh, I was just interested in China. And that led to an interest in the Chinese aesthetic, which led an interest to into tea. And one of my best friends at the time, he was in Britain, and he was learning about tea from the British angle. And it just became this thing we had in common and we loved to play with. And I became really just, it became a big hobby of mine, and you uh, guys know, I mean, tea is just amazing. It, it's all, all tea comes from the same camellia plant, all these v- practically infinite varieties of tea from the same little plant. It's just a, a stunning thing. It puts wine to shame, and it's something you can just play with forever and ever and ever. So loved it, loved it. It was a big part of my life in general, and then deep in a medical school, I was going to go into rehabilitation medicine. That's what I was interested in putting this stuff to use. So I figured, oh, I'll go to medicine. I'll work with other disabled people. Won't that be nice? And then I did a rotation in in rehab medicine deep in med school, and it turned out I hated it (laughs) for all sorts of reasons. And so I promised myself. And then one thing I learned was that time was short, and I wasn't going to... Uh, ac- uh, uh, you know, sort of accidentally sacrifice my life. I had met a lot of people who felt stuck in medicine. Like, well, my dad was a doctor, and i am done all this training. What else am I going to do? And they just stay in medicine. And Ugh. So I promised myself to not do that. So I was going to drop, drop out. I was going to finish med school. It was a senior year, but um, I was going to stop and go into the tea business. My friend and I had started the business, and we were doing it, but I was going to go recommit myself to it. But then I did an internship in Milwaukee in palliative care and uh, or in medicine and met palliative care and fell in love and off I went. But for a while I thought that was going to be my my life. It's still a huge hobby of mine.
0: Yeah. So I have two questions related to that. Should one put milk in their teeth?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Deep questions, Jim. Um,
0: <laughs> uh, this um, is actually an existential
1: <laughs> question. <laughs> Depends. If you're trying to if you got crap tea and you want to masquerade it, sure, put some milk in it. You know? <laughs> how many people are British
0: in this? Sorry. Uh, uh, sorry. Uh, I and, mean and the other, actually the and then we'll leave tea, but uh, shoot. The other question is, how hot should the water be? Uh,
1: depends on the type of tea you are brewing. Black tea, red tea, you will use a hotter water. Oolong's less hot. Green tea, some green tea's practically tepid. Okay. So enough about tea. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Lemon, Lemon, you know. Again, if you're trying to, if you like lemon, lemon, go for it. (laughs) But otherwise, those are often like flavorings. I've learned from being a tea merchant that that's often a way to just masquerade, not a very good substrate in the first place.
0: So there's tea. We were talking actually outside about uh, actually a seminal book by a fellow by the name of Ernest Becker. Have any of you read that book? It's called the denial of death. And the interesting thing about medicine, especially in the West, is that, well, there are two problems. One is medicine in the West is about illness. It's not about wellness, right? The other thing, though, is that we have separated life from the natural process of death so that it seems foreign. And that, as a result, many people, especially doctors, if they feel that they have failed as a physician, which means their patient is dying, they immediately cut off so they don't have to deal with that failure in front of them, and frankly, also a variety of issues associated with people who are near death. And many people are not prepared to die. And it makes it very painful for them because they're trying to cling and, uh, and they want so badly, and it creates more pain and suffering, actually, not only for themselves, but their family. And so, B.J., maybe you could comment on... And this book won the Pulitzer Prize, actually, in 1974, I think. But maybe you could comment on how you intersected with that and your thoughts about sort of this duality between the physical self and the spiritual self. And he talks about this... Immortality play that each of us creates for ourselves, and in some ways, a narrative of being a hero. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that that's a very that book was very formative for me. It's in uh, you'll see it in Annie Hall. It's referenced in Annie Hall a few times. I just there's a lot to say about it. For one, it, it helped me understand, helped pull my because medicine has sort of assumed death as its subject. This is unfortunate in so much, but of course it's not a medical not an inherently medical subject. And so it was interesting to read Ernest Becker, a cultural anthropologist, from a totally different angle. In the book, he basically sort of, in some ways, takes Freud's sort of obsession with sex and sort of crosses out sex, puts in death, essentially, that we humans are constantly bouncing off our, trying to wrap our heads around, our egos are trying to wrap our heads around this fact that we have to die. And all sorts of cool things, there's a terror management theory. I can't remember the guys' names who, who came up with this, but there's a whole school of thought around human behavior that flows from Becker's work. So it's really ripe stuff. I encourage you guys to, to look it up. But essentially that we spend so much time, because we're so enamored with ourselves or so consumed with ourselves, maybe is a better word, and that this this crazy idea that we have to love life even as we're losing it, that we have to somehow you know, find ourselves even as we're losing ourselves. It just doesn't really work in a lot of ways with the human mind. It really challenges us in some important ways. And we do some really weird things as, as a species, bouncing off of it. Really kind of fascinating things. I mean, I, I don't know about you guys. I am, I'm not really interested in doing away with neuroses, I mean, to me, neuroses are personality. So, I mean, I'm I'm all for life is weird and wild, and the, the crazy things we do are part of the intrigue for us. And so, so be it. But I think what ends up happening, if there's a tragedy in that, is you can become so consumed with the development of your ego, with the development of yourself, that you lose out on a life beyond yourself. That you lose touch with the life that's much bigger, that's flowing inside and outside of you. When maybe there's not so much to fear after all, um, once we kind of loosen. It's not for me. It's not so much as get do away with the ego. It's more like diffuse the ego. See myself in everything and everything in me. It's it's not out of megalomania. It's just a. It's like a, just a diffuse ego, and um, that has been very helpful to me. So yeah, and we see this in our patients. Yeah, fear is a huge thing. That as you guys know, it can be helpful. I should have been afraid of that train. (laughs) That would have been helpful. But, you know, there's a use for it, but it it can be too much. And if you're not careful, you can become so strapped with fear that you actually, and you're so afraid to lose your life that you forget to live your life. That's the great irony and
0: sorrow. Where do you think religion fits into this?
1: Well, religion's big obviously, and I don't, (laughs) I want to be careful. That was the softball question. (laughs) I um, I just want to be careful to not
0: sound like I'm an authority
1: um, uh, about, you know, but the thing that they seem to have in common would be that they provide answers to unanswerable questions or questions that we find very difficult to answer, like reconciling ourselves with, with the fact that we have to die, like we've been talking. That, re, that there doesn't seem to necessarily be an answer to this dilemma. And I think that's part of, you know, for me, i sort of more existentially, sort of philosophically wired. I'm interested in meaning. For me, I think meaning is something that we make, more than perhaps something that we find. Whether, if there's some great meaning to the universe, I'm not aware of it, and that's okay. I'm, I'm happy with the mystery. But I'm also. But meanwhile, I'm very aware that we get to. We're meaning-making factories. We can ingest or in, invest meaning just about anywhere, and it's a powerful, cool, wonderful force. But I'm getting off, tra- getting off track. I guess back to religion. I think religion provides us with a sort of a structure for meaning, and a structure for unanswerable questions. And a way to ease our fears because it implies that we belong to something larger than ourselves. And for me, that's the cosmos and that's enough. But whether there's a creator, I'm agnostic personally and I like that. I'm I'm a devout agnostic. But I do think that one of the things that's going on today is that we have lost, with the secularization of society, there's a lot of loss that goes with that. And I think in some ways, without that ready-made catchment for ourselves, we really extra struggle and we flail
0: around. So yeah. It's interesting because fear is not healthy. And one of the things that we study is how people's anxiety, fear, stress has a very negative physiologic effect, and in fact, uh, is associated with the occurrence of disease, the chronicity of disease, the severity of disease and is often associated with the shorter life. The interesting thing though is that this issue of our mortality for many people does create an immense amount of fear. And some people postulate that one of the purposes of religion is actually to create a belief system that says that you're going to live beyond this physical life. And, therefore, you have no reason to fear death. And, in fact, studies have shown that religious people actually live longer, as do Republicans. And that's associated with being righteous. Uh, no, I'm not, I'm not joking, actually. There, there is science about, about this. But, uh, but the point of that statement may seem unclear. The point is that it's here. We create the narrative that gives us what that is And whether it's meaning, whether it's comfort with our own mortality, and I think you were saying you're a devout agnostic. I'm actually a devout atheist. And because I don't need to to sort of have this thing that says, well, if somebody's there, then I agree you could be there. I just don't choose not to believe that. But it's okay because I don't have that fear. And... We are talking about meaning, and it's this idea of you create meaning. And that's a very powerful thing. And each of us have the potential within us to define what that is, what it can be. And actually, it's incredibly uh, powerful. And, you know, the other thing I was going to comment on is that I've spent a fair amount of time with fairly significant spiritual and religious leaders like the Dalai Lama or Thich Nhat Hanh or Amma. <coughs> And the thing I found fascinating about that is not one has hit me in the head and said, you're an atheist. Yet, I have deep relationships with some of these people. And the extraordinary thing about that is is their interest at some level is no longer about the dogma of the religion. It's about what's in your heart and whether you care. And I think that is the fundamental core of not only who we are, but the gift that we actually can give to other people. One of the things I want to talk to you about is what percentage of people actually carefully prepare for their death? Hmm. I don't
1: know the number, but it's, it's, it's small, it's a minority by a long shot, but that's changing conversations like this. Uh, I mean, that is, there's you guys coming to a talk like this. There's an interest that seems to be shifting, but very few people that I meet are prepared, uh, have thought about it enough to prepare to die, sadly. I think we all agree that that's an important thing to do. People who work in hospice and, uh, and around end of life and perhaps in medicine in general, perhaps you too, Jim, there feels, it feels like there's a secret. Like A lot of us stave off thinking about death it almost feels like a superstition. Like if you think about it, somehow you're welcoming it. If you say the words, you make it happen. And so we kind of just keep it over there, and that, and, and we think that that's going to help us live a, a f- have more fun or something. The converse or some inverse converse is so, when people see, oh, you work in hospitals, oh, you must be so miserable, oh, you must be so sad. And yeah, sure, it's sad. But the the secret I'm getting to is no. I mean, I think a lot of us get hooked on this work because you learn pretty quickly that by roping death into your worldview, into your frame of reality, not, not the opposite of your reality, not the antithesis of your reality, but part of it, when you accommodate it, A, it becomes less frightening, but B, you tend to live much more richly and potently, and you have a sort of, you right-size yourself. You neither need to puff yourself up to somehow defeat this thing, but nor do you have to feel diminished because you're going to lose to death. So the, the secret, I guess, is what I'm trying to say is, those of us who have rubbed it into our worldview is not morose. It's a little bit of a, it's a way for us to actually love life while we have it. And that's a sweet, sweet side effect. So I think that's one of the messages a lot of us are trying to get out there, that, yeah, preparing for your death is practical and useful in all sorts of ways. It helps your family, it does all sorts of things, but it will also help you live your life in a much more rich way in the meantime.
0: How many people actually have done, if you will, all the work you think is necessary to prepare for death? Oh, that's a large, a huge number. (laughs) Wow. One person. (laughs) Two. Two, okay, two. But it just shows you because most of us sort of want to push that away. And, uh, you know, it's quite extraordinary because, you know, it can just, and immediately, and I have to tell you, I have not done adequate preparation uh, uh, myself, actually. You've been with a lot of people who have died, and I have as well. And as you point out, I mean, sometimes it is painful to watch, and it's especially painful for someone who's made no preparation whatsoever. That, I think, is very, very painful uh, to watch. But being with somebody who actually has prepared and has been thoughtful and has released themselves to that inevitability It is actually an extraordinary honor and privilege to spend those last moments with those individuals. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you might share uh, one or two examples or of an experience that you can recall. Yeah. You know,
1: there are are a fair amount of negative examples for folks who have put it off, put it off, put it off until it's too late. And you know, in a word, those examples are potent because they point you to regret. One of the things that's happening is as, as there's a sort of reacquaintance with death as a subject and in increasingly in popular culture, and, one of the, and that seems really good. But one of the fears is that, that just the reductive forces of media and sort of group thinking are lopping off some of the harder emotions in that mix, because it is hard, the idea is to not look at it so that you think it's really neato and um, and to put some glitter on it that would be that's a mistake. You look at it so you can expand your capacity to feel all sorts of things, not to narrow your aperture but to blow it open and I, I little I worry sometimes that we're again in this massive way we're cutting off the things on the margins that are so critical so that that's a digression, but one of the things I see that's really hard at the end of life are folks who are just loaded with regrets. And invariably, they say, you know, if I had only, if I had just stopped and thought about how precious my time was, I would have done X, Y, or Z. I would have told my kids I loved them more, or I would have done this, or I wouldn't have done that. And now there's no time. And so they have all this extra sorrow, this extra regret. That's really, really hard to be around. And I, also very informative for me. I meant another quick digression. For me, I feel like my goal for doing this job is so that I can learn to love what I have while I still have it. That's my goal. I, I keep watching myself appreciate things right when I'm about to lose them or right after I've lost them. I do it all the time. So it feels like my, thanks to my patients, they keep reminding me to, to watch that. So anyway, so I'm sort of he- heading towards the negative examples. <coughs> regrets, and those are powerful. And in some ways, the goal of minimizing your regrets is a really, is a really good one. Sometimes sitting with patients who are trying to make decisions about treatment will often use a sort of If they don't know which way to go and they're not really sure how they feel and ambivalence is so normal, sometimes we'll say, we'll do this little trick, we'll say, well, let's leap ahead. Let's get picture yourself in your deathbed and and look back. How will you wish you have handled this? What would you have wished to have done? What would you have wished to have become? It's a little little trick and sometimes it's really helpful. I do it too. I'm digressing on digressions, but so I think what you're asking about, Jim. I mean, some of the powerful stories of people who have done their homework. Well, I sort of feel sorry for those guys because they end up there. Not only do they have to be dying, but then they have to end up teaching everybody all these things too. So they had to like, because they actually have things in perspective and things in check. And again, that doesn't mean no sorrow. They just have it in perspective. And they're and and same with disability. One of the things that's so hard about it is not so much the inborn aches and pains of it, but it's how the world treats you. And So I watch these poor folks in deathbeds who have really done their homework, and people are projecting all their junk onto them, and they've got to, you know, navigate it and. Fin- but their final contribution is as, this, as these teachers. I just remember one patient who's just there were multiple, but at Zen hospital project, a woman named Jeanette who stood out, and she was really she had ALS. She was really feisty and cantankerous, and one of my favorite things about her is that she was dying. She started smoking again, which was, I thought, was just so beautiful. As a doctor, I can't tell you how funny it's prescribe cigarettes. It's like practically it was such a weird thing, but Jeanette loved it. She was. She also reminded me of the sort of aesthetic potential, the immediacy of our senses, and the sort of power of having a body in the first place. So she would watch her smoke out on the patio, and she would just. It was like it was ecstasy, and it was just. Like and she had trouble breathing, so it was not an easy fa- task. And so, she was like making a cast of her lungs with every inhale. It was like allowing her to feel the contours of her lungs. It was just gorgeous. This is, I don't mean to go, I'm not encouraging to go smoke, um, but I just mean that a person who's done their homework and is daring to live out every last cell. It's a beautiful thing to behold, and it doesn't necessarily have to look like peace. It can be filled with smoke and, and feisty, angsty, all sorts of stuff. It's all welcome. But the trick is those who have done their homework, I guess, the bottom line is they don't hate themselves for dying.
0: When you had your accident, did you have a near-death experience?
1: I mean, technically, I mean, I almost died, but no, I didn't have, didn't see, no, not in the way I think you're talking, not asking. No, nothing special happened. Mm. <laughs> so, no. But I did come very close to death. but. Uh, it was really after I was out of the woods that my doctors were finally honest with me and let me know how close it was. And there were the things they were telling my family at the end, my parents at the end of most days. And maybe this was near deathy insofar as I remember hearing that and being, I almost, I think I maybe even smiled or laughed because A, it felt cool to have almost died. B, like there was something, I feel like there was something in me, and I'm not, I don't know where it's coming from. Maybe it was the drugs, maybe it was ignorance, but I really felt like I knew better, like I knew I wasn't on some level. That was sort of the feeling. Like it, it, The smile that came on my face when he told me that was, I think, because I, I realized I had some, that there was this thing called intuition. There was a gut going on at work, and yeah. But no, to answer your question, Jim, unfortunately, I didn't, I didn't see God, I didn't see a
0: light, I didn't... Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com